All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, brought to you by the fine folks at Reed Rothbard. We run ActualAnarchy.com and ReadRothbard.com, and today we're going to do episode 26 about the movie Tombstone, and we have a special guest. But before we introduce the guest, I want to say hello to my friend Robert, co-host and uh, single man. How you doing, Robert? Why? Why is that got to be? Why, why do you got to mention that? It, on the Facebook, you mentioned that to a bunch of like Tom Woods people. I, I guess it's not the worst thing to say. But anyway, hey everybody, we're doing another episode. We're gonna do the uh, the Wild West show. It's gonna be fun. It's gonna be wild. We got a wild man with us. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, speaking of the wild man, it is a familiar face around here. Kenny the Wizard of the Wizardly Wisdom podcast. He had us on a couple of months ago, and that you can find at uh, actualanarchy.com slash 10, uh, where he interviewed us for his podcast. He also runs libertariannerds.com and does some work for Walter Block, but uh, I'll let him take over from here. Kenny, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, I think this will be a really fun topic. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much what I do. Um, just re- do the podcast, interviewing all the cool people I meet in the Liberty Movement, and then trying to, to get a little bit of organization and uh, accessibility to the WalterBlock.com website because uh, he's, he's one of my heroes in the Liberty Movement. So trying to help him out, get, get it all squared away there. So Yeah, Walter Block is, is a great, great guy. He's, he's a giant among Lutarian Circle, a living giant. Uh, we featured a quote of his in our Running Man episode where we're talking about sexual harassment and one of his quotes, which is probably a little off color for most, but he makes a good point in that there's no coercion happening. Like if the person accepted the position with that condition or if they continue to stay there with those conditions, then, you know, it's a choice that, that both parties are making. But anyway, that's what Walter's great at, pointing out the hypocrisy in a lot of the arguments of the left, SJWs, etc. And one of my favorite series uh, out of him is the uh, Defending the Undefendable, where he showcases, you know, a dozen or two dozen people that, or types of people that you would normally think, oh, they're a bad guy, the uh, the slumlord, the, the cheapskate, the whatever. But yeah, the blackmailer. <laughs> right, the blackmailer. But in each chapter of his book, he shows you how they're actually performing a positive good, a service for somebody somewhere, and that on net, it's an improvement in the situation, and uh, it's just pointing it out, which is is the amazing genius that he is. Yeah, I I, I don't have a whole lot to add. The only thing that I I think the one thing I think about about uh, Rothbard or not Rothbard Walter Block, where you were um, <clears throat> talking about some of his off-color things, uh, is his ongoing. Uh, feud with the New York Times where they characterize him as slavery loving because he said that the problem with slavery wasn't the conditions, it was the involuntary nature of the institution. 
and and he he said something like he's want to say, which was kind of flippant, like, well, you pick cotton and and uh, sing songs all day, eat gruel. What's so bad about that? You know, this paraphrase. And they took that that he's you know pro-slavery when really he was trying to emphasize the point that it's not the the living situation that they were in, which was terrible, but it was the fact that it was involuntary and they couldn't leave if they wanted to. And so, yeah, unfairly maligned, but very, very important libertarian thinker. And so trying to bring it to the masses, uh, get his website accessible so that anybody wants to look at his work and, and read about, uh, you know, what he's thinking, especially his scholarly work, which I think is re relatively accessible for a lot of scholarly work. You know, you could be an intelligent layperson and read some of his scholarly articles and come away with something um, that that's really interesting and helps you, you know, get the idea clear in your own mind and be able to articulate it better to to tell other people. So, yeah, really really important part of it. So the stuff I'm doing is helping him out, and then you know the other stuff's fun too. Love interviewing people. Loved having you guys on. So I, I'm looking forward to it. this. Should be a fun show. Yeah, Shots I agree. fired. Against the New York Times, the venerable institution. I am shocked and appalled, sir. I will not have you desecrate their good name. <laughs> Oh man! Well, you know, I was it today. I, this is off topic, but was it today that um, the FBI Director Comey pretty much uh, showed us that the New York Times article about the the Russian probe and, and all that was pretty much hot air from the New York Times? So I don't know. I mean, I don't have a problem with the New York Times. I just don't read them. But it seems like they're doing shady business up there. <laughs> yeah, I think I, it's been that way for a while. <laughs> True that. And now we can add them to our keywords. So thank you for mentioning them. Yeah, yes. Exactly. <laughs> Helping us with the Google search. That's right. SEO. That's what we really do the cast for. That's right. <laughs> Tombstone, uh, what's what's the what's the deal with this? Why'd you guys uh want to do this show? Yeah, that's a Daniel answer. Um he's the one that suggested this one. Yeah, you know, this one came up. We have a list of like 200 movies that we want to do. And this one, I think you and I had talked about the last time we were chatting on Facebook, Kenny, mm -hmm. uh, where you were on a business trip or something. And yeah. for whatever reason, this movie came up. And I was like, okay, let's do that movie. I put it on the list, and I got it to, to come to me via DVD on Netflix or whatever, or DVD.com, however it works now. And then I forgot, I, I'm sorry, I forgot that you were the guy who suggested this movie. So I get to watching it, start talking to Robert about it, and I'm like, all right, let's do this movie. It's It's got tons of quotes and it. it's really good. And then I remembered, oh, wait, Kenny talked about that. And we talked about doing a show with him. Let's bring it together. Let's get it back on. So I'm going to turn the question back to you. What, what made you bring this movie up? Me? Um, I... I, well, you, you hit it on the head. I was on Facebook. I was bored in Dallas on a business trip, and it just happened to be on AMC. And I was like, man, I'd forgotten how awesome this movie was. Like, when we were younger, it was – I don't know if you guys ever did this when you were younger, but you have, like, movies that you put on when you're, like, drinking with the boys. You know, like, you just – it's not like you're really watching a movie at all, but it's just kind of like background. <clears throat> And so when I was in college and, and that time period, this was one of those movies where you we, we would just put it on because, you know, you, you pop in for all the best, you know, best parts. And then when it's like the slow parts, which is basically any part that uh, 
Val Kilmer isn't on the screen. You're just like, eh, talk about something else. You know, whatever. Who, who's, who's cute in geometry class? I mean, I don't know. What, whatever college guys talk about. I mean, I'm sure it was all really G-rated and appropriate. So, <laughs> so yeah, that, that's what happened. Is uh, I was just like, yeah, reminded of how cool it was. And so I was like wasting time on Facebook, soliciting, soliciting people to engage me on Facebook because I was bored. <laughs> and here we are it worked out because yep. it made me want to watch that movie again I hadn't seen it in you know 20 years since it first came out and I had forgotten how quotable it was and how yeah. many good scenes it had though I will admit that in watching it I was having difficulty following the plot it seemed to be a little bit muddy and it seemed to have a, a the the chronological sequence of events didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. I couldn't tell if it was days apart or months apart or anything like that. Yeah, period. <laughs> yeah, like uh, when this Sam Elliott character gets shot in the arm after the... What, what was that? He was going home from the gambling casino. Mm -hmm. He got shot. And then they meet up at this house and they're like trying to fix him up, patch him up, and the Bill Paxton character storms off. Well, it makes it seem like that night he's at the pool hall venting some steam or whatever and then gets shot and killed. But I think later on I sort of realized that it was actually a few months apart. Like the sequence of events were actually stretched out quite a bit. Right. No, I, I was looking through the history of it in preparation just because I, I really didn't know a whole lot about like the actual goings-on. And, and really my one conclusion that I came to from, from reading through the history is that none of the characters in the movie are good people. Like, even, even the protagonists uh, in real life are pretty violent and uh, kind of shady guys, <laughs> Wyatt Earp especially. And so that was something that I thought was, was pretty interesting. And, and then also, you know, the sequence of events is... Um, you know, I mean, they're making a movie, so, I mean, you, they got to take liberties. But, yeah, not not super historically accurate. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the gunfight, the OK Corral is fairly well noted, but the whole war between Earp and the Cowboys, I don't think a whole lot of that actually happened. But I don't know if you, you – it sounds like you kind of researched it. So yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, it seems like it, it did a little bit, but it, it was mainly like some isolated events that were for like the movie makes it all seem really personal. And it seems like it was really more centered around like activities that the Cowboys were doing, like some cattle wrestling and stuff like that. There, there was one thing where they were like stealing uh, U.S. cavalry uh, livestock or something. So, I mean, the, truthfully, though, like. Something that, that Dan showed me before was this article about how, for the most part, the, the West, even though, you know, we, we think through all the Westerns that it's really wild, it's, it was actually relatively peaceful, and there was a lot of private law going on then. Um, you know, even if it had kind of a government approval to it, you know, there was a lot of, of, of small communities doing their own policing and stuff like that. And, and so, um, you know, the events of the OK Corral and everything going on in Tombstone was really kind of not the norm at all. And that the, it was like isolated groups of people acting in isolation, not that this was going on everywhere. 
So I, I think that that's something that that's really interesting when you when you talk about these movies because they do make it seem that you know going for your gun and especially in the movie with you know who who has the cloak of legitimacy of the law I think is is a theme throughout the movie like different people become associated with becoming lawmen and then it's okay for them to go after their enemies or whatever. And, uh, and I, I don't, I mean, I'm sure some of that went on, but I don't think that that was the norm at all really in that time period. Yeah. That was one thing that really stood out to me was, Oh, it's legal now that I have this piece of metal on my chest <laughs> and a bunch of like a big gang says it's okay for me to do this. So now it's okay. Right. <laughs> so, all right. No, it, it was weird. Like whenever, whenever uh, Robert was talking, like since he doesn't have a camera, it's given me this big white screen, and then I was having this very Skeletor look. And I was like, oh, maybe not Skeletor. <laughs> As in your Skeletor, or I'm Skeletor. No, I look like Skeletor because I had the light off, and so it was like when it, when it was Dan, it was like normal, normal level of light, and then when it was you the white screen was like reflecting off my face and I was looking very Skeletor. Nice. Can you Which do a Skeletor laugh? No, not, can't do, Skeletor is not in my wheelhouse. Right. He, he's got like this kind of nasally weird voice and yep. I don't know. He, it's, Super whiny. Yeah, and it, yeah, exactly. Not, not something, I mean, maybe my normal voice, if I just laugh normally, then it does sound Skeletor, but... <laughs> It's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty close. Oh, Skeletor. Misunderstood. They all are. Yeah. All, all, yeah. all the comic uh, cartoon villains, they're just misunderstood. I like his, uh, his origin. It's like he's just this normal guy, but then he got like acid thrown in his face, and so then he just had this perfect skeleton face for some reason, <laughs> and he didn't die for some reason. They never explained how he can see or anything like that. It's all magic. Magic oh, yeah. Gray Skull. There you go. The, the power of Gray Skull. The white. The white power of Gray Skull. Oh dang! Oh. Why are you gonna be all racist, Daniel? <laughs> so I don't know if you guys know this, but now it's not white. Is actually not the official color of white supremacy. It's actually purple now. White supremacy is purple. Oh, the bird and the flower. Yeah, exactly. What? We're, what are you guys talking about? You don't know? <laughs> no, oh, I didn't right, go to my this year's Klan rally. Lay it on. <laughs> I don't know how this came to be. It just all of a sudden everything that was racist was also purple, and so I was like, "It's now official. The new color of white supremacy is purple." Now, what I heard so was it, it was it was four chan type trolling yeah. where they would yes, turn yes. any normal thing into this means was, white power. Yeah, everything means white power according to four chan. Mm, okay, right, and so they, they all believe it. <laughs> Right, so it's it's like super trolling. So uh -huh. when Facebook introduced like this emoticon about I don't I don't know what it was supposed to represent, but it became a uh, it was a purple flower with like a yellow center, and four uh -huh. chains started saying, "Oh, that's white power." And so <laughs> Facebook removed it. Right, it's not right. available anymore. <laughs> and then there was this like purple bird. Yeah, the trash that, pigeon. Yeah, the trash <laughs> pigeon. And then they said, "Oh, that means white power." And so. Yeah. <laughs> now that's like a big deal, and, and it, similar thing happened with like Pepe the Frog and uh, the OK yeah. sign that like apparently means uh, white yeah, the w. power, yeah. like the, this is a P down here yeah, or whatever. Right, and then they everything turned, is white power. Everything yeah. is white. Power. 
they show like Obama doing this or, you know, whoever, you know, what anyone you would think that would just be like totally not white power. Oh, man. They, well, can we equate government to white power and then just everybody hate government? I, I'd be okay no, with that. No. Government is like the most underprivileged of the underprivileged class. Like you could be a, <laughs> a bisexual so uh, black Jew and, uh, and and still the government, you know, they're, they're still above you. <laughs> well, because there's all those tax cheats out there who aren't paying their fair share, right? So the poor government is, is the victim here. That's, the that's right. Politics. Exactly. And, and the economy collapsed, and so all their ta- tax revenue collapsed. I mean, it, it, it's, it's tough being the, you know, worldwide hegemon. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it's a tough life, but somebody's got to do it, apparently, <laughs> and apparently it's us. We, we, we are the ones. No, that's, that's the biggest, like, misnomer that I wish I could get rid of is we are the government. Like, the government has anything to do with the people in the government or, like, being ruled by the government. Absolutely. Yeah, Larkin Rose is great on that. If you haven't read the, uh, what is it called? The Greatest, the Most Dangerous Superstition. That's what it's called. That's yep. cool. That's an excellent book. Highly recommend it. He repeats himself a whole lot, but he's got to fill up some space. All right, so guys, let's talk about this movie, Tombstone, a 1993 American Western film directed by George P. Cosmatos. Is that right? It's star studded, right? <clears throat> yeah, this has so many people in it that at, at first glance, you don't even think about uh, how, how many people get their like, start in this movie. Yeah, a lot, lot of really, yeah. I, I, when I, you know, we were talking about before how, how we came to, to want to do this episode, and I had seen it recently on AMC, the movie, and I was like, man, there are a ton of famous people in this movie. So, um, yeah. Obviously, stealing the show, Val Kilmer, who is one of my favorite actors and in this movie, just absolutely amazing. So look forward to those quotes. Iceman kills it in this movie. That's right. right. Yeah, so his his top three is is Top Gun, of course, just because Top Gun is so amazing. He was he is a horrible character in that movie, you know. <laughs> it's like I he's like he's like trying to comfort Maverick over losing Goose and he's like, Yeah, everybody liked him. I'm like, oh my god <laughs> But I mean I guess it was still well acted, it was just the character was a douche, so <laughs> Yeah. Uh and he's he's good in heat. Heat's a good movie. And oh, then of course yeah. this is his coup de gras. This is the piece de resistance from the Val Kilmer character portrayals. Oh, he's also really good in uh, The Doors, right? He was Jim Morrison. Yeah, yep. although I, I can't give him uh, his best work in, in Tombstone. For me, it's got to be Willow as Mad Mardigan, the sword-willing, sword <laughs> crazy person. That's a classic favorite movie of mine from my childhood, and I like I, that's my first thought when I think Val Kilmer is Mad Mardigan. So. Oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> He is a lovable rogue in that movie. An underrated Willow movie. Good job. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up because it's one that we want to do. But for whatever reason, it's not available to purchase in a digital format. Oh, wow. I don't know why. We have to buy a physical disc. And watching a physical physical disc in my house is very difficult. None of my computers have a drive. (laughs) The only thing I have to play something is a PS3 from, you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. But my kids go to bed at like 7 p.m. So when am I going to watch this thing? The TV is like right outside the bedroom of the, of the girls. So there's no way of watching this thing. No. 
Yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, I, I, I acquired my copy that I have in digital form through various means that uh, <laughs> cannot be discussed in open forums. Wizardry is what we like to call it over here. Right. And uh, Intellectual so. property is theft. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I, but I, close second to Willow is, is Val Kilmer's performance in Tombstone. Maybe more quotable. I, I might give it that. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie that I believe is, is the parts are better than the whole, uh, where there's, there's very memorable scenes, really good quotable stuff, but when you jumble it all together, it doesn't make a whole cohesive story arc, I think. I had difficulty following it, but I did enjoy watching it. It is very entertaining. Great performances. Val Kilmer steals the show. Kurt Russell, who, by the way, outed himself over recent interviews as libertarian light, libertarian leaning, yeah. very conservative, and that's very difficult for a Hollywood actor to come out and say. Definitely. Uh, they get blacklisted blacklisted in many ways. But uh, anyway, let's get back to uh, talking about the movie per se. So the Googs, and Robert and I like to laugh about how usually it's it's very incorrect what the Google description of the movie is, mm -hmm. uh, reads as such. Wyatt Earp, played by Kurt Russell, and his brothers Morgan and Virgil, played by Bill Paxton and Sam Elliott, have left their gunslinger ways behind them to settle down and start a business in the town of Tombstone, Arizona. While they aren't Looking to find trouble, trouble soon, soon finds them when they become targets of the ruthless cowboy gang. Now, together with Wyatt's best friend, Doc Holliday, played by Val Kilmer, the brothers pick up their guns once more to restore order to a lawless land. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's short and truncated, of course, but uh, that's not the worst description I've heard. No, I mean, it, it's not bad, but Google doesn't know everything. I mean... It's uh, yeah, I, I'll tell you one one thing that just popped into my head that um we we uh, didn't talk about before the show is that like a lot of the um, impetus behind the initial confrontation not the initial confrontation but really where it comes to a head with between the cowboys and the herps is when um the the brother um, <clears throat> I think more Sam Elliott's character. Uh, becomes the sheriff of Tombstone and tries to enforce a gun ban on Tombstone, and um, and that causes and that's really the uh, original reason. I guess in the movie, I don't know if that's how, what it is in real life, but in the movie, that's why there was the confrontation. There was because they were they were carrying when they had decreed that there would be no open carry in in the in the city limits. So yeah, something that's very interesting. Yeah, we'll. we'll, yeah, we'll We'll get there. Oh, that's no. a bit. That's an okay. excellent point. But I think we should talk a little bit about the movie before we get to that key key point. Sure, definitely. I jumped the gun there. Literally. Uh, no, I mean the <laughs> the first part of the movie, like there, it's all like I don't know. It's so boring. Like you you said you said it best when it's like really good pieces, but as a whole, it's like kind of just jumbled mishmash. Like I, it worked really well for me half paying attention to the movie because like whenever. It's like, oh, here's the Earps coming to Tombstone, and, and there's a little, like, whatever. They're washing themselves in the window, and we have a nice little scene of the Earps as, as a family and all this. And I'm just like, all right, I, I, I'm busy on Facebook right now. I have no idea what's happening. And then, and then uh, you know, and then things start happening. You know, and I guess the really the, the first thing that happens is when uh, Wyatt Earp gets the interest in the Pharaoh, Pharaoh game at, the Oriental, 
right? That's that's where the movie really starts taking off. I guess, dude. I mean, do we want to say anything about the opening scene where we see what horrible, horrible people the cowboys are? I think that's good. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe so contrast. Let's, yeah. Let's, let's start it off here. Um, so Tombstone, it's got plenty of sweet gunfights, and it's got probably some of the best mustaches in uh, oh, yeah. in a movie definitely seen in a long time. Kurt Russell's sporting a sweet one. Sam Elliott's always rocking his badass. Right. Yeah. And this movie, like you said, it sure likes to play up the drama and the violence, whereas the actual Wild West wasn't so wild. You were far more likely to die from like influenza or tuberculosis or any number of things rather than than getting shot up. Whereas the in the beginning of the very the very intro of the movie, there's like a voiceover. And they're basically saying how the Wild West was filled with murders and thieves and holding towns ransom and as if this happened all the time. And um, I think Daniel sent me uh, a thing on how the Wild West wasn't exactly so wild. So, Daniel, if you want to mention that a little bit. Yeah, we'll have this in the show notes as well. But essentially the, the story that we've all been told in movie, television, books, etc., have been played up to garner sales and views and ticket sales, etc. Uh, essentially, the Wild West was much tamer than is presented. Um, I think that there's some statistics presented in an article that I'll post down below that basically says that the Wild West was a lot tamer. Only 45 murders happened in like a 10 or 15 year period. And it was equivalent to what was happening in the civilized East Coast, the major civilization point of United States back in the back in the 1800s, late 1800s, when this uh, genre kind of takes place, and it makes sense, you know, you, you if it bleeds, it leads, right? So the more violence and the more heroics that you can play into a story, Wyatt Earp, uh, if you look into the, the history of the man himself, he wasn't this gunslinger, heroic, walk on water type dude until after his death, when his exploits were retold and Every fish story, the fish gets bigger, the struggle gets longer, the bait becomes weirder, whatever. So it, it's, it's been built up over time, and it really doesn't have a whole lot of reality left when you start watching a Hollywood film. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and so bringing it back to, you know, the movie's talking about the ultraviolence. At the very beginning of the movie, the cowboys are raiding a wedding party, right? Like, that's... That's how we're introduced to their to their violence, and then some foreshadowing where the priest says some some garbled Spanish, and then it's eventually translated to us uh, as uh, a part from Revelations about the four horsemen, foreshadowing you know the the three Earp brothers and Holiday or you know whatever Holiday and Earp plus uh, whatever the Curly Bill whatever whoever joins up. <laughs> so yeah, foreshadowing, but really presenting these people as, as really just like like an evil gang where I, I'm sure the reality is that they were all bad people and but I, I just I don't I don't know that it was as clear-cut as the movie presents it where these guys are just like going and murdering people you know willy-nilly <laughs> right but there's some interesting things to, to bring up about this this original opening scene so it's the cowboys, like you said, they're seeking justice against the Mexican police for the killing of, the, of two of their own gang members. So they, they show up at this wedding or just outside this wedding and they throw 
these two red sashes at the feet of these guys, and they're like, this is for two of our own. Now, these are some guys who are seeking, you would call this vigilantism, right? I mean, this is them seeking justice for the murder of their two compatriots. Now, you, I, I, like you probably, and like every other viewer, especially shown in this movie, would say, well, you don't show up at a wedding (laughs) and you ambush a bunch of people. But say what you want about vigilantes. They're not cowards. At least they have skin in the game. They're putting their own lives at risk to get justice. So, yeah, what their, their, their actions are terrible. At least they're willing to put their own lives on the line to seek justice for what they see is right. Yeah. Although, although I, I would bring up the point, it's like, um, you know, Rothbard's big example of you see A walking down the street and B comes up and, and takes his watch. Well, who's the aggressor? Well, you don't know. You know, like we, they don't really go into the circumstances of how these cowboys got killed. You know, I mean, if, if, right. they, if, if, if they were in the process of committing wrongdoing and then got killed, well, then we still wouldn't recognize their right to justice. <laughs> uh, all we're left with is their willingness to put their own lives on the line for what they see is right. That's all we're given. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we, yeah, we're we not, don't know we're, what their initial motivations were for how this confrontation came to be. But, I mean, killing a bunch of women and children at a wedding, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody's going to be like, well, that might have been overkill. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think and, and killing the priest for no reason. <laughs> yeah, it's disproportionate for sure. Uh, though I think that that character Johnny Ringo, he he has a uh, streak in him where he he goes w- above and beyond whatever would be quote unquote moral or equal or or expected. Like he's the Kaiser Sose of this movie. Yeah, you know we're talking about Johnny, and we probably bring it up later too. But he has one of my favorite quotes in the movie, which is they're watching the uh, theater show of um, Faustus and Bill. Asked Johnny, say, what would you sell, uh, sell, sell your soul for? And his answer is, I already did, or whatever. And I was like, yeah. yep, that's, that's cold, cold as ice, Johnny Ringo. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, he's the ice man of this movie. Right. <laughs> so. Right, so Okay, so, Dana, do you have, do you have some more things to say about that, or should we move on? Well, I, I just wanted to mention that So the, the wedding was down in Mexico, Right. And historically speaking, the cowboys were a gang that were doing cattle rustling, and there were a whole lot of uh, taxes and tariffs on certain goods in Mexico. So there was a, a market for smuggling these things down there, and so that what is what led rise to the cowboys to begin with. So it was government intervention in a market that created the opportunity for a violent gang to become a viable operation, a viable situation. I, I don't know of any modern real-world examples of that. Yeah, I have can, no can idea. Can you guys think of anything that would fall along those lines where the where the government intervention is, is causing violent gangs to be risen? I, I'm struggling here. Yeah, I can't think of one. Yeah. It doesn't happen, right? My mind draws a blank, but uh, check out actualanarchy.com. You'll find plenty of examples there. Uh, <laughs> so... I got sidetracked here, but um, yeah, the whole point of them even doing what they're doing is is because the market was finding a way beyond or around and through the government imposed sanctions and 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 other issues that begot all this violence. Now, for them to go down to Mexico 
and for the killing of two of their members who are probably up to you know some kind of violent act as retribution to then go and kill an entire wedding party including the priest I think is over the top and I think that later on it's it's shown to be in the film as a contrast to the good guys the quote-unquote good guys because the cowboys will kill indiscriminately you know it doesn't matter they'll they'll kill you take two of them they'll take 20 of you and and they'll rape the women and they'll do whatever uh, whereas later on in when we get more familiar with the good guys, where they decide whether they're going to fight back or not, the Kurt Russell character, Wyatt Earp, is like, you don't know what it's like to kill a man. It, cha- it changes you. It changes your soul. And he killed one guy by that point. And so there's this huge disproportionate presentation of, of who's willing to commit what amount of violence and, and what toll it takes on the psyche presented in the film. I think that's kind of bizarre. Because it's well, so yeah, the, uh, the, the cowboys are definitely shown as I mean, they're the black hat villains. They're they're sociopaths without a conscience. Whereas right. we get Wyatt Earp's conscience weighing on him. Right. So it's that demonization right away, like dehumanization. Like these guys are animals, whereas Earp yeah. is like this vigilant or this vigilant uh, good guy, white hat. Uh, who's yeah. There's not even a anything unless there's a badge on him. There's right. even a quote later on in the movie by Bill Paxton who says, "These guys are bugs. There's no live and let live with bugs." So yeah, total. Total dehumanization, saying that these people are just animals. You can't, you can't reason with them. You can't live with them. All you can do is kill them. Right. And and I do want to mention before we get too much further is that cowboys. I'm not sure if this is exactly where the names, the name cowboy comes from, but it was derogatory to call these guys cowboys, the gang cowboys. And now it's like that's what you call people who herd cattle or wear western gear or whatever. Yeah. And it it shows a couple of things. Number one is that something that becomes derogatory will be embraced by that culture and they'll own it. Right. And then the other thing is that words change over time. They become different meanings. And you see this all throughout, in, especially in SJW areas, where it used to be you couldn't say handicapped or you couldn't say retarded or you couldn't say whatever. And they would replace it with a new word. But mm-hmm. then the new word would start getting used to, I don't know, speak ill of someone else. So then the new word becomes a bad word, and then a, 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 yet another word replaces that, and then the same cycle happens again. So you have this yeah. evolution of language, not only in this who's offended by what and, and how, and then they change it to something else, but then you have the Orwellian thing where it's the new speak and, and things mean the opposite of what they mean. You have all sorts of distortions in language, and that really damages the ability to have understanding when you're having just everyday conversations about things. Uh, I was in a Facebook dispute with uh, someone the other day, and they were saying that rights don't exist, but you can defend yourself. I'm like, well, that doesn't compute. Like, if rights don't exist... Sounds like you have the right to defend yourself. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) And so I think that his his argument is is based on a misunderstanding of rights or a distortion of rights, or he's making a, a semantic argument on his understanding of whatever rights happen to be today versus what they were a few years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Right? Yeah. Yeah, the evolution of the language is something that's definitely really key. I can I can think of in my own lifetime cer- certain things were called like you brought up handicapped people when I was when I was growing up they were all, you know, cripples and retards and now I don't even know because I don't talk about them or to them very often, so I I don't have to learn all the latest lingo to talk to them, but it's uh it, it is it's an evolution and, and 
honestly, I, I feel like sometimes, I mean, words have power, but I feel like sometimes, like, the, the whole SJW thing is not about being offensive, but it is about manipulating the meaning behind words and confusing the issue and muddying the issue, as opposed to what they want to say what it's about, which is protecting everyone's feelings or whatever. I mean, right? That's just cover. <laughs> that's just cover. I think that most of these things are the cultural Marxism and the uh, critical theory. And critical theory, I, I, I learned recently what that actually was, and it sounds like it's a it's a school of thought or something intellectual, right? Well. If you look into it, all it really means is criticize whatever is the majority position. Make it sound like whatever is happening today is the worst fucking thing ever. Mm -hmm. And that is critical theory. It's, it's denounce whatever the current situation is, whatever the current quote-unquote power structure is. Right. Talk down about it. Say it's terrible. And it's, it's a strategy to undermine and to try to bring a mass of people together who are disgruntled about something and, and, and giving them sort of a, uh, a scapegoat, right? Something to be mad at. Yeah, a focal give, point. Yeah, give them a villain, right? Mm -hmm. And whether it's, it's true or not, and, and nine times out of ten, it probably is not true. Yeah. Uh, and, and in also, the movie work, oh, go ahead. Uh, well, it absolutely ensures a paycheck. I mean, yeah. the outrage police and the, the language police, they're always whining about something because, you know, you've got you to stay relevant. You've got to be just complaining about the latest thing. So it ensures your position at whatever university you happen to be at or whatever news outlet that you happen to be at. Yeah, it's almost a bureaucratic process where you need to ensure your own position. So whatever job <laughs> you've been assigned, you can't solve the problem you've been assigned to solve because then you would be out of a job. Right, right. work yourself out work. of a job. <laughs> Permanent revolution, that's what they wanted. And, and I feel like we're almost there. <laughs> It like, feels like it. They, I mean, and they were really pretty open about it, talking about the leftists and the SJWs. Like all along, the Marxists and and the and the SJWs have said that you know a permanent revolution against the rule, uh, ruling class and, and just perpetual. So like nothing is ever going to be a good enough to satisfy them. Like there there is no way that you can refer to people that's going to ever be the way that is the right way. Like, they're always going to be updating it. And, right. Uh, <laughs> the moving goalpost forever. Yeah. yeah. You know, Jordan Peterson is a guy that I've been following recently, and he's great on this stuff, and he calls this stuff out for what it is, and he won't put up with it. I have so much to agree with him on. Robert, are you familiar with him? I, I think I've Yeah, he's a tenured professor at the uh, University of Toronto, as I recall. He's uh, been the result of many feminist and SJW attacks on YouTube. Mm. Right, and he was nobody a year ago. It was only when people confronted him at some, you know, you need to call me G or some other weird pronoun. And, oh, it's, it's easy. Just put it in your phone. And, and you can remember, like, all the 50 different words that you can say uh, to, to make sure it's inclusive, right? Yeah. And he was like, no, this is nonsense. You know, this is nonsense on stilts. This is this is making people di more divided than they ever would be. And, and now you're codifying it in the law, and and you're going to potentially ruin people, put them in prison, or fine them. Uh, they'll lose their jobs, whatever, based on pseudoscience that's that's written into law that is has no basis in reality. And and how can anyone ever know if they're right or wrong? And no, I think that might be their ultimate goal is just to have everyone so fearful that. You don't, you don't want to express any opinion because you – not necessarily that the opinion is bad, but you could be expressing it in the wrong way, 
and so you're in trouble. Doesn't even matter if you're right or wrong because you're you're so fearful that you're going to be set, make a verbal misstep that you you just don't say anything. Sounds like we should be talking about 1984 because that's exactly the totalitarian state that they lived under in that book. But we're well, actually I mean, talking about Boomstone people. Right. No, that's yeah. true. That's a good point. No, good point. I, I was thinking about getting back to the movie. No, what we were going to say was that, and that was how they, they, cast the, they cast the heroes and villains. And so when we're watching this movie, the cowboys are really bad people and the Earps are really good people. But I think in reality, they were all pretty bad people. <laughs> right. They're all people with flaws and good points. And absolutely. Right. So, um, a point that we made earlier is that the cowboys are identifiable because they wear red sashes. Mm-hmm. And it becomes important later in the film, but Robert, go ahead. Okay, so we've gone through one scene in the movie. Now, this next scene is Kurt Russell arriving in Tombstone, and he's um, getting off the train, and a, a young like stable boy guy or whatever is whipping his horse, and he takes, takes the whip, and he whips the guy, and he says, hey, you don't like that, do you? Now... I don't want to make a big point about this because it sounds like we have a trillion things to talk about. But I kind of had an issue with this. I, on the one hand, I love animals, but on the other hand, they don't necessarily have the same rights as human beings do. So, no. so when a guy is whipping a horse, I mean, how different is it when you're taking the spurs to a horse as you're riding it or that sort of thing? So for me, when he grabs the whip and he whips the guy, I'm like, well, that's that's not cool. Yeah. Um, Daniel, did you have any issue with that or, or Kenny? Yeah, I, I was like, oh, here's our SJW animal lover check, check mark. This guy loves right. animals. He loves his horse. <laughs> yeah. He's going he's to whip a stable boy trying to get the horse off the train and uh, because he was using, using the whip on the horse or the riding crop, whatever. Yeah, yeah it's like a virtue signaling type thing. I do think there is a point where you can be overstepping a certain boundary, like say the guy – He's whipping the horse, and he's getting off on it or whatever. And I think in the film, it's, it's a little bit muddied on whether he's overdoing it with whipping the horse or not. And I think there's a point where if it's Kurt Russell's horse, it's Wyatt Earp's horse, he can yeah. say, don't whip my fucking horse. Yeah, I, I was going to make that exact same point. I mean, it, it is yeah. your horse. It'd be the same with your pet, you know? Like, you wouldn't want somebody to whip your dog or something, and it's your dog, so you're the one that sets the rules about it. <laughs> Yeah, and I would have no problem if he had said that to the guy, but he didn't. He grabbed the whip and then whipped him himself. Yeah. So after that, he gets uh, approached by like a local law dude, and we're right. not given a name. Behand, but he goes, right. he, but he's immediately saying, "No, don't want any of this. I'm here to make money." And I thought an interesting line from the guy was, which is kind of a recurring theme in this movie, is, "I never saw a rich man without a guilty conscience." Right. And <laughs> That seems to be demonizing, you know, the robber barons of the time, that sort of thing, who are totally demonized. And we probably need to do some sort of an episode on that at some point. Yeah. But um, throughout the movie, uh, later on, and we'll probably get to it at that point, but um, the Sam Elliott character, he, they're kind of making money in the town. And he makes this claim that they're making money off of the suffering in the town by not doing anything, just by making money which is I really want to dispel that. Um, This whole idea that you're making money off of suffering by providing service and by not doing a thing. Yeah. um, Yeah. yeah. um, I agree. There was a slant against 
making money. Like making money in this film was was deemed an evil thing. Even in the uh, the very opening where they said it was a very violent era, uh, they also said that that people were moving there to make money because they're greedy. Yeah. Well, and, but I thought that the um, Kurt Russell's character's response to that was was really cool too. And that was I already had the guilty conscience. Might as well have the money, right? So yeah. that I mean, I'm all. I think that. I mean, no one can go through life without making mistakes and, you know, probably screwing some people over, you know. You, I mean, you try and minimize it as best you can if you're a good person, I think. But um, situations being what they are, uh, sometimes people's toes get stepped on. So, I mean, I, I certainly can see both sides of it. I don't mm-hmm. know. M- money, money, the seeking of money can certainly be an activity that promotes bad behavior, but at the same time, I don't think that it's bad in and of itself to want to get rich, and I don't think that it's necessarily causing problems to just want to not get involved in other people's problems and make your make your money, you know? <laughs> right, like we, Daniel and I have said many times on the show, I mean, in a, in a voluntary society, how you make a lot of money is to provide a really great service that a lot of people will voluntarily pay for. But what they seem to be saying is that you're, you can only get rich by screwing other people over, which you can certainly do. Right. But, uh, when it you're not aggressing against that person, you're actually providing a value. You know, you can really only get to continue to do that with the protective situation with the government. You know, like if, if, you're, if you're constantly screwing people over, you're going to not have customers for very long. Right. There's already mechanisms in place to... to stop people from doing that. And the number one is, as you said, people just don't want to do business with you if you're a shady individual. So, Certainly, yeah. Reputation is huge. Today, as it was back in the, those days. Absolutely. Okay, let's keep going. So we get introduced to Doc Holliday. He is at a kind of saloon-type casino thing, and he's there with his girlfriend, and he is playing poker, <laughs> and they are sick and tired of him winning all these hands, and there's kind of like a scuffle where where Holiday stabs a guy and then his his girlfriend puts a, a gun on the bartender and they end up kind of walking out of there robbing the place. Yeah, um, uh, it sure seemed like he was robbing the place to me. It didn't no, I, seem like he was like uh, just just winning a lot of poker. No, I I completely agree. And that that scene has uh, a really good line in it, which is uh, the one about. Um, if I, if if I thought that we weren't friends anymore, I don't think that I could bear it, right? That's that's what right, he does. Yeah. That one, and uh, I, I mean, Paul, I don't think that I think it was like a crime of opportunity there. Like he knew the town was burned because like they weren't going to let him gamble anymore after this altercation. So he was just like, yeah, just robbing the place blind. You know, he's got his gun on everybody. This is what I mean about they're not really great people. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you. It seemed like well. I'm done in this town, so I might as well take this money. And then they're walking out, and then there's a bunch of money sitting on this next to this roulette wheel, and he's just like, "Well, I'll just take this too, I suppose." <laughs> uh, it didn't seem to be like a premeditated thing, but it definitely seemed like he didn't have to rob the place. He could have just left with the money he felt he was justly owed via the right. gambling. That it could, we we could say that this was a you know a a vigilante judgment for his pain and suffering over over his <laughs> reputation being maligned and and et cetera et cetera while he was gambling the the gambling house owed him <laughs> no I, I mean not really i'm just i'm just kidding but yeah that's funny <laughs> daniel 
Daniel is gone. Is he still on camera? No. I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I think it was it was definitely a crime of, of opportunity. He already had the position of being able to extricate himself from the establishment, and there was the opportunity to take whatever he wanted with him. He knew he was going to leave town, and he's not the greatest guy in the world. He's, as they say, a lunger. We haven't even brought that up yet. He's got tuberculosis. He's he's a dying man, and he's like, why not? You know. Yep. Right. So that's why yeah, you're not a lot wearing of, a bustle. <laughs> right. There's a lot of that throughout the movie. You get the feeling that he's got this devil may care attitude because he knows he's going to die soon anyway. And he's definitely just, he, wants, he wants to go out in a blaze of glory instead of just dying in a hospital. Which, interestingly enough, is, is what ends up happening, right? I mean, don't want to oh, spoil spoiler alert, spoiler. right? <laughs> Jeez, Kenny. I know. It's horrible. Horrible. All right, well, that's the end of our show, everyone. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> No, spoilers for everything, always and forever. No, so after that, it, we, we go back to the, um, that's like Doc's introduction, and then we go back to the Earps, and that's, that's when, you know, in, in the beginning of the show, when we were talking about um, the Earps get an interest in the Pharaoh table with a, with a confrontation with, um, oh gosh. Billy no, Bob Thornton. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton is the actor. I can't remember. It, it's Johnny something. Right. Yeah. You may, I don't you know may go now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's a really good scene where uh, Wyatt is insulting him, and he says, "Skin that smoke wagon and see what happens." Yeah. And he slaps, and he says, "You gonna do something or just stand there and bleed?" That's right. <laughs> no, I think uh, it's interesting because it seems like the uh, the owner or the proprietor of the hotel or the uh, casino, he's like powerless to get rid of this rogue dealer yeah. for some reason. I mean, could you just stop paying him? Or was, uh, That wasn't exactly clear to me why he couldn't get rid of this guy. Well, I, I think that it was a, a situation where the, peop- the person running the table was making a lot of money, and I think the situation was that they would just give the bar a cut um, uh, as part yeah. of their I'm setting up in your bar thing. So it's probably like He's running off all the customers, and then what little money that he's making at the Pharaoh table, he's probably keeping for himself. So, yeah, and, and the guy, he was he was pretty spineless. So, need, needed needed big boy Wyatt Earp to come and take care of it. So Wyatt provides a service, and as a reward for getting rid of the guy, he takes 25% of that, the cut of the, he said the house. Protection yeah. money. Um, the gambling, right. And then there's an interesting discussion as Doc shows up and says that Wyatt claims that Doc has said that gambling is an honest trade, whereas, and then Doc corrects him and says, no, poker's an honest tr- poker is an honest trade. Casino games, are the odds are with the house. But then Earp says, well, nobody's putting a gun to their head to play, which is a very libertarian thing to say. Like gambling is, no matter what the odds are, if you're yeah. determining that you want to put your money up and play and spin the dice, even though the the odds are against you. That's that's up to you. There's no coercion going on here. Yeah, you're not being oppressed. Everything in life is risk, right? right. But it's probably a foolish risk, like Doc says. Pharaoh, the the odds are on the house. But as you say, you know, no one's putting a gun to their head. And they can they can play as they want. So that's when Wyatt gets the um, literal hmm. gun to the head. <laughs> yeah, he he gets yeah exactly the literal gun. Not not quite to his head, but. Uh, the character, Billy Bob Thornton's character, comes out and wants revenge and has a shotgun. <laughs> right. And he's just like, put that shotgun down, leave it. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was interesting because at that point, then the sheriff comes up and 
Wyatt is introducing Doc to the sheriff. And I got the impression that Doc didn't want to shake hands. He says, he says I'm not going to shake your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, did he, I got the impression that he didn't want to shake his hand because he was the law, not necessarily because he has tuberculosis. It's mm, a good question. I thought it was because of the tuberculosis, but it could be because he's law. But Wyatt was law. Yeah. Yeah, but I, not anymore. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, or I, maybe just, I don't know. I always got the impression that Doc Holliday was just kind of a dick. <laughs> he was like, true, I'll, I'll shake Wyatt's hand. I'll, I'll, I'll say hey to him. Oh, who are you? No, I don't shake hands. Sorry. Right, right. Yeah, he also mentions later on in the movie that he doesn't have a whole lot of friends, and that's, yeah, very true. It's very Trump of him. I think that's a a thing Trump's known for is not shaking hands. I don't know if it's now as president, but in the art of the deal and in previous, in the 80s and 90s, he never shook anyone's hand. Yeah. It's like a power Uh, move. Yeah, yeah, there was a big uh, kerfluffle over he wouldn't shake President Merkel's hand or something or whatever, Chancellor Merkel. Herr um, Merkel or Herr Merkel. De Führer von Urkel. Anyway. Have you guys been following the uh, the outrage with him, people blocking on Twitter? And people are claiming it's a First Amendment issue and they're all whining that no, he, can't I haven't. Possibly, he can't possibly block anybody because that would be destroying their First Amendment rights to to follow a president on Twitter. <laughs> 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 Which you can still see without being logged in. I'm pretty sure, like everything is published. Yeah, I don't think they have private messages. In fact, yeah, president's uh, not allowed to block anybody. I think that's hilarious. There's some conversations about now whether his Twitter conversations can become legally binding in some respect. Like, oh, he said such and such on Twitter, and now he's doing the opposite. So, does the Twitter thing mean that his Intention was something the opposite of what he's now saying, blah, blah, blah. It's a bunch of bullshit. That's hilarious. <laughs> so now Twitter's like part of politicking, I guess. Oh, yeah. I think all the social media, it's like the, the fifth arm of, of the establishment. Like they have the, the print media as the fourth, and then the uh, social media is now coming into the wings as the fifth arm. want everything to be... It's definitely what the left uses to... Uh police everybody with yeah so now there's this separation of powers right used to be three branches of government now it's five but Mm -hmm. guess what it's branches of one thing (laughs) (laughs) that's right so that separation of powers thing doesn't work for me but that's just me i'm an anarchist uh, you're a weirdo all right, so there's a, right after that scene we were discussing in the movie they're um standing around and all of a sudden the gunfight takes place and they watch a guy get killed and they say, then the marshal comes up to him, to these two men who are in this gunfight, and say, I got to take those. And they say, hey, it was a fair fight. It was a legal fight. Now, I'm sure there's all kinds of things we could talk about on this. But the idea that, okay, first of all, if it's a, it's a fair fight and they each had guns and they're each going for each other and it's a voluntary situation or whatever, does the marshal have the right to come along afterwards and take, steal the guy's property, these weapons, this self-defense property? I think that the argument being made in the film is that it's only right for the marshal to take the uh, firearms if it's a crime that's been committed, and that's why they were trying to make their case that, no, this was a fair fight. This wasn't something that would be a criminal affair. Yeah. Right. I, I think that it's it's uh, it's kind of a, a, a hazy thing. It's one of those things, like, I'm sure you guys uh, have heard this before, where, you know, a police officer 
could be doing something that might be questionable and then if the person is found guilty then he's vindicated but if he's found innocent but then the the police officers in jeopardy for for whatever crimes he committed you know in pursuit of justice you know i think it's one of those things where well we're going to take your guns until there's a judgment against you and then if you're set free we'll give your guns back you know and i don't know i don't have a huge problem with that truthfully so Okay, I think there's maybe an argument to be said, like if this is like a private situation where you've got somebody who just killed somebody, you don't necessarily want them running around with a gun for the time being until you establish that that person was innocent. I could see that case being made. Yeah. But from the innocent party's perspective, you're like, hey, you're stealing my, my ability to defend myself in case there's any retribution for this crime, this, this killing or any other particular reason. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's an interesting point you bring up, Robert, because there's this presumption, or at least there is this alleged presumption that there's innocence until proven guilty. Uh, that's not how it plays out in reality in, in the legal system today. Supposing that it was that way, then yeah, you wouldn't take the guy's gun, right? Like until he was found guilty. But I think that runs counter to... God damn it. What did you spell? <laughs> My cat did. Ah. Blame it on the cat. No, the cat Classic did. Daniel. I right, saw this, it. I saw it in, reality, in on video. Folks. There's water all over my computer right now. <laughs> oh, that's good. We're about to lose connection. <laughs> Gonna get a judgment against my fucking cat. <laughs> You're right. No, so, but to to the point you were talking about, I think maybe what would make it okay for me would be if they were going to hold the guy in like protective custody until the judgment, you know, until the court case. You know, like if you as the as the law person said there might have been a crime here committed, I'm gonna take take custody of you and guarantee your safety, which should be a part of the uh, of the custody. Then you yeah. don't need your weapons. And then once everything has been you know gone through the proper legal channels and and you know you're ruled that this was a a lawful shooting. <laughs> Then, uh, then, then you'll get your weapons back. And, and, and I mean, I feel like in, in a libertarian sense that that's probably, I mean, you're never going to get a perfect situation where everybody's, their rights are going to be perfectly protected. But I feel like that's probably a good compromise for somebody that's just been in a violent altercation with somebody. And I, I like the idea of offering that service. Like, hey, I'm going to take your gun for the time being because we don't necessarily want a killer running around on the loose. But if you feel like you're wrongly accused and, you don't have a way to defend yourself. Here, I'm offering the service of you being able to come into my custody and protection until this is the situation's all sorted out. Yeah, I, I could get on board with that. Definitely. Well, I just want to make one point that that this presumption of innocence until proven guilty is a uh, government structure, and that it wouldn't necessarily play out if it were a private property society. Like it'd be up to the owner of the property where the said event happened to determine what the resolution would be, and I. I think it would be like sort of there would be a certain awareness of, hey, I'm going to this person's property and they have X type of rules or expectations versus Y person's property or type of expectations. I think that there would be a more uh, a higher awareness of, of where you were going and what parameters you needed to abide by to be there. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you, but there would also be some pressure on each individual property owner to conform to societal norms. Certainly, yeah. I mean, if you, especially if you are running your property in a way where you're trying to like earn profit out of yeah, like a merchant of some kind. <laughs> right. Yeah. You you need to make it more attractive for them to be on your property versus another. 
like Rothbard brings this up in um, his lecture on conserva conservation. He's like, well, there'd be a variety of different types of beaches. Like some, there'd be very stringent controls on how much you could litter, and there, you know, you throw something on the ground, and, and there's this security guard that comes up to you and says, no, you can't do that. Versus uh, a different beach where you know you could kind of litter around, but it might cost less, or it might be you know like more lazy affair. You might really just hang out. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I think those are those are all really good points. Uh, but the in the movie, the end result is that he does uh, hand over the, hand over his weapons, and I'm trying to think. Then then what happens? We we kind of get an introduction to these supporting characters that are um, eventually, I think, join up with Earp's posse. And, yeah, those uh, are the two of the guys that join the posse later on. Yeah, you're right. I forget their names, but yeah. Something, something Creek Johnson. <laughs> that's about right. That's right. That's one of them. All right. So, hey, we're about 10 minutes into the film, but about an hour into the show. So I'm going <laughs> to fast forward us real quick and just read the next, like, block of scenes, and then we can just sort yeah. of riff from there for a little bit. Yeah. Wait, so, I, wait. I had, no, I had one important thing I want to oh, talk God about. It's not it. important at all. <laughs> it's not important, but it was right. one thing that I wanted to ask because it was Do an it. interesting thing. Okay, so they're in the sh they're they're at this theater, and the cowboys start shooting up everything, right? Right. So so they kind of show their approval or disapproval. They're like firing their guns in the air, or they're shooting like directly at the actors on stage. First of all, okay, you're gonna probably not want to go back to that town if you're that traveling actor troupe if you're getting shot at, of course. But I mean, first of all, it's a nap violation shooting at somebody can't defend mm. himself. They're not trying to kill him, but you could, and you might shoot something uh, behind the guy that's standing backstage just minding their own business. And also, okay, when you fire a gun, especially like a, like a peacemaker, right next to somebody, that is freaking loud as shit. And you can't go deaf from that. And I know they're just actors doing whatever, but if someone fired a gun right next to me, and even if he's shooting it up in the air, I'm like, what the fuck, dude? I'm trying right. to hear with my earballs right here. That's absolutely a nap violation. And yes, there are societal norms, and you might not want to go into that theater because that's where they always shoot up the place. If you're just hanging out and someone pulls out their gun and just starts shooting right next to you without hearing protection on, I would be pissed. Okay, that's my rant on that. All right, yeah. so I'll, I'll come back to you with this is a Hollywood movie, and that whole idea of just shooting randomly into the air as celebration I think is a Hollywood trope. I don't think that it actually happened because as we discussed in our episode on war dogs, and I don't recall the number on that, but the guy was shooting into the air and the bullets got to land somewhere, right? Like somebody is eventually going to get hit by one of these bullets and you're right. It's fucking loud. So <laughs> I really doubt that people are just shooting off, especially when ammunition and, and, and things are like a, a prized commodity. I'm sure it's not inexpensive to purchase ammunition back in this time and this era especially when you're out in the West, right? These little, like... Right, they didn't have factories making it then. It was all small small little places making making ammo. I'm sure it was very highly priced. Right, so I, I highly doubt that this type of thing even happened. And especially inside of a building, you're going to shoot the ceiling that, of a theater? That's what gets me the most. And, and like, like uh, Robert was saying, a, a gunshot inside a theater, that's going to be so stupidly loud. <laughs> Yeah, multiple gunshots in a theater, that's ridiculous. Although, I will say to your one point about the shooting things up in the air, in, in, if you're shooting it straight up in the air, then, then, then the bullet on its way back down doesn't hurt anyone because of, because of uh, the, the wind resistance of it. Like, it, it, uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't get to uh, 
whatever, kill you velocity. Does it get the terminal velocity? Yeah, it gets the terminal velocity, but b- because of the way, like, the, the lightness of the bullet, like, what, what makes it so deadly is how fast it's going, and it doesn't come as down as fast because of, of uh, it doesn't have the, 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 yeah, the wind resistance, the terminal velocity is less than the velocity, muzzle velocity. So, so, so here's the interesting thing about it, is that if I shoot a, a bullet straight up and down, comes back down, it's not going to kill anyone, but if I shot it at a 45 degree angle, that horizontal velocity can maintain, uh, maintain its velocity long enough to, to kill someone. So if I shot up at 45 degrees, uh, you know, I could kill someone on accident a few miles away on the, on the long arc, but not straight up and down. According to Mythbusters, you know, if they're to be believed. Okay, I was going to okay. invoke some Mythbusters myself because they, they talked about the James Bond where he goes under the water and they're shooting machine guns at him and he survives. And they actually show in a pool that even like a 50 cal can only go something like 18 inches into the water at a terminal yeah. rate and then it'll not be harmful. And so that might make make me have to amend my statement on war dogs where they're shooting up into the air or the whole cowboy thing I just talked about where they're shooting up in the air. If it really is harmless, uh, I, I find it difficult to, to believe it, but I guess it makes some sense because there's this, the friction in the air. It's the, the coefficient of, well, of mu, right? That's, that's I don't call harm less. It may be not lethal, but not harm less. No, no, wait, I'm, like, I'm less. sure it would hurt, right? <laughs> don't meteors come down and strike people dead, though? Doesn't yeah. that happen? Yeah, and yeah, didn't definitely. Plato get killed by a, a, a rock falling from a, a bird of some sort? Is that yeah. the story on that? I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't know. No, I, I, I'm just going off the, the myth, Mythbusters. They did a thing where they were like ha, had, the, uh, had the bullet and dropped it down into like a, like a wind tunnel to kind of simulate it you know, free falling at terminal velocity. And they found that the way that the aerodynamics of the bullet works, it, it doesn't, it, once, once its energy from the initial, you know, shot is expended, it doesn't maintain that forward facing cut through the air uh, orientation anymore. It kind of falls on its side. And so when it's falling down, it, it loses its lethality. Okay. All right. I mean, if, if they're to be believed, maybe, maybe I'm making sure. all this up. Who knows? It's one well, or the other. Sense. I, I think that the guy's name is what Adam Savage, right? He's one of the Mythbusters. He went full SJW recently on Twitter, I think oh, supporting God. the the Bill Nye assertion that now gender <laughs> is a construct and there's like a hundred genders. Where, oh, God. of course, Bill Nye back you know 20 years ago when he was Bill Nye the Science Guy said our chromosomes and our DNA <laughs> determine sexuality and that's the science of it. And now he's of course having these. I don't know. Have you seen this, Kenny? The, yes. Yes. Bizarre, worst, worse than karaoke dance thing about this sex junk song, and he's like spinning the beats or you know scratching the record on this thing. He's like a 65 year old pervert. No, I, I um, no, I love. I, I've seen the the Facebook videos of like his views now versus his views then, and they like show the episode from back then where it's like, and some people are born boys, and you know, and the X Y chromosome thing, and now it's like, oh no, it's a social construct. I'm like, no, I'm I'm pretty sure there's a pretty sound biological basis for this idea of gender. <laughs> All right, so think about this. Think about this for a second. If gender is a social construct, guess what? The patriarchy cannot exist. Oh, dude, you're making too much sense. That we're about to be shut down. I can tell. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the movie. So, Wyatt, 
though he's no longer a lawman, he's pressured into to helping rid the town of the cowboys as tensions rise. Curly Bill begins shooting aimlessly into the air after a visit to an opium house and is told by the marshal, Fred White, to relinquish his firearms. Curly Bill instead shoots the marshal dead, making it look like an accident, but then Wyatt takes him into custody, assuming that it was intentional. The arrest infuriates Ike Clanton and the other cowboys. Curly Bill stands trial, but is found not guilty to a lack of witnesses. Uh, Virgil, unable to tolerate the lawlessness, becomes the new marshal and imposes a weapons ban within the city limits. Let's take it from there. Yeah, that's what we were talking about at the beginning, was that that's where really everything came to a head, was this weapons ban. And they got into this altercation because they were trying to disarm these guys, uh, the, the cowboys. And uh, and then you have the the iconic uh, OK Corral fight, and uh, I thought it was really well done in the movie. Truthfully, <laughs> seemed like a whole lot of shooting and and not a whole lot of people getting hit by bullets to me. I feel like that's a movie thing in general. Like I feel in real life, like you put enough lead in a certain direction, like most of the things in that direction are getting hit by it. And a peacemaker is actually a fairly accurate revolver handgun. I mean. At that range that they were at, and especially since uh, Kilmer had a shotgun, and there's one part where there's all these all this gunfire, and then one of the guys is hiding behind a horse, so Kilmer shoots in the air with a shotgun, and then of course that's the shot that actually scares the horse. Yeah, the, all the other the, the horse was fine until then, and then that one spooked it. <laughs> right, all the other gunshots, the horse is perfectly fine with. Yeah, if the horse had had rights, that's the one shot that violated the NAP for the horse. That's right. <laughs> right. Shooting up in the air near the horse. Right, but all so, the other shots, no effect. Right. And then that that leads directly into the Cowboys' retribution against them. And then, of course, I think right after that they have the, the big – in the in the bar where they, they get into a, like a flourishing their gun match holiday right, and right, right. Johnny Ringo. That's one of my favorite scenes. Like, Well, now let's – oh, go ahead. But go, I want to no, go, go back. Ahead. Okay, so – Daniel, I wanted to ask you, because you're a huge uh, homesteader guy, and I tend to agree with you, but you, you use the homestead argument in lots of creative ways sometimes. Because this, you know, it wasn't a crime to have your guns on you up until the one point in time where they just decided to make it illegal. Would you say that the, the, the cowboys that lived in that town had homesteaded the right to carry their weapons on them, and everybody else had too? Well, I think it gets very muddy because it's not a private property situation. It's it's a it's a town. It's owned by everybody. It's a municipality. And right. So I'm t- I tend to think that having a weapons ban of any sort would be inappropriate. Sure. Especially in light of a Second Amendment, and back when they had some adherence to the Constitution, at least <laughs> in in name only. So I I was rather appalled that a weapons ban was even instituted. Now, if it were a private property society and you were inviting people onto your property, and they had been bringing guns all along, I think that it's totally within the right of the property owner to now institute a change in the conditions upon which people can enter. It's sort mm-hmm. of like if, if private roads were a thing, more so than they are, but, you know, like the whole drunk driving thing. Like, you can mm-hmm. change the conditions on which you're going to allow somebody to drive on your road. Right. Uh, a similar situation here. So I don't think that in the film as depicted that it was a an appropriate thing to do and it was uh it was an excuse actually for them to go and confront them and and i think they actually play to that point they're like well now i've made it illegal for them to carry guns in here and they're carrying guns in here so let's go after them yeah right because they don't actually own 
all the property in the town. So it's ridiculous for them to just all of a sudden say you can't, you can't right. carry guns. And it's thing. it's using the law as a weapon because right. before they weren't going to go after them because they wouldn't have been technically justified. But now they say I'm the marshal of this town and I decree that there's this law now and now they're in violation of that law. So now we can go after them. It's sort of like writing their own ticket. Definitely. Right, and Earp is very much against it. He's saying you want to start a war, you want to risk death and mayhem over this misdemeanor. Yeah, and um, he and then he says, "Damn right, they're breaking the law." Just yeah. this, this law yeah. that they just made up. <laughs> right, like, you know, this, this sacred cow that they just can't. No, this thing I just made up on a whim. Are you kidding me? We have to. Heavens will fall. Yeah. Well, yeah. and and that's. You know, probably one of the parts of the movie that has so many more uh, modern corollaries is this idea that we're going to make things illegal to allow us to go after the people we want to go after. And, you know, we have so many things today, especially like what brings to, what immediately comes to my mind is like the drug war where we're going to, by fiat, say that all of these you know, things are contraband, and not only are we going to try and prevent you from, from having them, but if we suspect you of having them, we're just going to take your stuff, you know? <laughs> you know, we're yep. going to civil asset forfeiture you. And, and what's really sad about all of that in the modern context is that sometimes, even if you're proven innocent, then you still have a heck of a time trying to get your assets back. And, and so I think that this is kind of an illustration of... A, a, a kind of an earlier usage of this same idea where we're going to use the law as a weapon to, to get to get the people that we don't like as Absolutely. opposed to people that are actually doing any violence. Sorry. Right. Right. No, you're right. Um, I'm sorry to cut you off a little bit there, but um, yeah, you're in that case, your property is deemed actually as a defendant. So it's like there's, there are court cases that are like United States government versus $400. They're actually our <laughs> And so then the, gov- the, the money is declared illegal or uh, guilty or the house is declared guilty. And, yeah, the impetus to try and get your property back is – or the, the ability to get your property back is, is so impossible. Um, yeah, and they yeah. use it to buy, to buy equipment and more ways <laughs> in which to impose their quote-unquote law against right. the machine. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, the OK Corral happens, and then uh, there's this funeral procession where the cowboys are saying, you know, they're, they're carrying the coffins and there's these big signs that say these were murdered by the Wyatts, by the law. They're sort of like doing the Black Lives Matter thing. And as retribution, they go after the Wyatt brothers and Virgil is uh, injured and then Morgan gets shot and killed because they can't get the bullet out. And then Wyatt has this internal struggle on whether he's going to fight back or not. And it turns out, of course, he is, right? And he right. becomes almost this saintly figure who can walk on water and survive a hail of bullets and yeah, take out all the bad guys. He's yeah, more of the movie, more more of the movie trope where a hail of bullets comes and people can keep and dodge them all. <laughs> right. So uh, Dan, before we do that, just let me. There's there's one interesting quote I wanted to talk about. Um, after the the shootout at the Goat Corral, the sheriff comes up to arrest him. And right. White Herb yeah. says, I don't think I'll let you arrest us today. Yeah. So, so the law only applies to the bad guys and not the, quote, good guys. Um, where's the sense of justice? It seems to be just this tool that he uses as a hammer whenever he wants to use it. 
and not when it goes against him, which, I mean, of course, is the way it is with government all the time. But I, I think it shows a, a lack of character in that instance. Yeah, I think it's interesting on two points. Number one is that he had just said, at least Virgil had just said, well, it's the law, so we have to go after them. And right. yet then when they're like being arrested by the law, then they resist. But I think that the sheriff, what's his name? Um, it's, it's Behan. Weasel yeah. McFace Weasel. Yeah. yeah. He's outed. <laughs> He's outed in this confrontation because he says, oh, I've already disarmed them. And and then they, of course, see that they're not disarmed. So it's it's shown to the Earps that Behan is betraying them and he's lying and he's in cahoots with the cowboys. True. But he is still the face of the law in the town, supposedly. Right. But they now see through his his lies. And so they don't recognize his authority. Right. And, and that's, I think, a, a really important point is that, like, legitimate uh, authority is conferred on someone voluntarily. Like, you can I don't have a problem with authority in general. It's, it's illegitimate authority. And so, you know, if you're, if you're um, elected sheriff, I mean, that's not the best way. But, you know, the best way is if I'm coming onto your property, then I'm already just uh, voluntarily saying that you have authority over me on your property. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to abide by your rules. And, and I think that that's an important point to make because really as, as anarchists, I feel like that's the, really the only legitimate form of authority is this, um, you know, confer, conferred authority in or most cases. Now you volunteer to accept the conditions on entry or remaining in a certain area, which was the point that Block makes with the uh, sexual harassment case in the, the quote that I referenced earlier. And I'll, I'll post it down in our show notes again so you guys can read it for yourselves in all of its glory. I don't remember the equal pay for equal work signage that you mentioned. Mm. Yeah, it was a throwaway. It was like just a background kind of extras thing. I noticed it. Some like suffragettes or what was it? Who was? Yeah, some women on like a, like a wagon cart. And they had a big sign that said, equal pay for equal work. As they're like, coming into town or something? Or? Yeah, it was in town. It, it wasn't like they were traveling. It was like it, the sign was there to, the purpose of them going through was had to, to have the sign. It wasn't like they were traveling somewhere. Okay. Well, I don't remember that, but if you want to talk about it a little bit, sure, I don't care. Yeah, and, and my angle is mostly, you know, whether that was legitimate, happening or not in the historical context of it. I think it's interesting that in 1992-93 when the film was made that they were putting those types of things in film that sets the table for now 20 years later you know now it's a big deal mm -hmm. and it's it's sort of a Hollywood trope like I, I've noticed it in uh, TV shows like Will and Grace was this is going to sound super like <laughs> terrible <laughs> But Will and Grace was edgy at the time to introduce gay main characters, whatever. Uh, and, and you see it in some other shows as well where they'll introduce a concept that will be edgy or racy at the time. And then fast forward 10, 15, 20 years later, now it's part of the culture. And now it's like a political movement. Now it's a disadvantaged group that needs our help. They're being exploited, whatever. They need special rights and privileges. And you can kind of look back historically... 20, 30, 40 years and see this in film and television where you'll see these things brought up and then lo and behold, you know, they become big deals later on. But in uh, Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood, 
1979, yeah. whatever. He has a uh, a scene where they're interviewing potential inspectors or potential detectives from the police force, and one of the mayor's representatives is there, and there's the police commissioner and Callahan, that's the character that he plays, and, and one other guy. Five of them can be men, but three of them have to be women. And so Callahan's like, what, what is this? So he starts asking, like, how fast do you run the hundred? How much weight can you lift? What would you do if somebody puts a gun in your face? And the mayor's representative, who's a woman, is like, you can't ask these questions. You're trying to poison the well. You're trying to, to make sure it's qualified, right? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm trying to say if you're out there with a partner and you don't make the right decision, you're going to get killed, and then your partner's going to get killed. So it was, it was like a, a, I didn't realize that back in 1979 when this was made that that was very prophetic, you know, like granted I was one year old at the time. But, <laughs> um, it, it's weird to see looking back because I didn't think it was a big deal until recent times, right? Yeah. No, I feel like this is the culmination uh, of a lot of things. One movie that that I like to point to as something that was prophetic was this one called PCU. Have you ever seen that? Got uh, Jeremy Piven in it. Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, I remember liking it. it. It's really funny, and yeah, they um, they 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 have all the the protesters and stuff and protesting all these things like women women's rights and and all this. And, and and they do it all really tongue in cheek, but then like nowadays, it's almost like the college campuses are this caricature from the 1990s of uh, of, uh, of you know really hyper politicized um, culture, political correctness. And oh my god, uh, Kenny, Kenny, have you yeah. seen the uh, the um, shit? What was it? The um, Mad TV skit where uh, God, they're shopping at like a Target, wasn't it, Daniel? Uh-uh. Daniel, you know what I'm talking about? Was this that woman with the glasses who's, like, super annoying? I forget her name. No, 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 no. This is the one where um, this lady wants to, like, return something, and they're asking, like, normal questions, and then they act like you're aggressing against me and you're attacking me and you're being racist. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, and they, like, end up tasing tasing the guy at the end. Yeah, they tase him. He's, like, being the most reasonable thing in the world, but they're all, like, social justice warriors, and they think he's, like, the worst human ever. It's awesome. It's so prophetic. Yeah. Yeah, and he's a fucking white male, and that's that's the whole reason. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. That's what's so bizarre about all this stuff, right? Like, they say that they're fighting racism, but they're being overtly racist. Like, they're basing yeah. all of their determinations on race exclusively. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... I the most important thing in the world. Yeah, I can, I agree too. It, it, it's it's really funny too, and and their answer to that is that you can't be racist if you're not being oppressed or against a group that's not being oppressed. So yeah, it's about power, right? Yeah, so, racism so since, is like privilege plus power. Yeah. So since since us white guys like we run everything, like I you know I I just got back from the last meeting <laughs> we had where we're running the world. And, and so, like any any uh, you know, a- anytime you want to bring up how pe- they're being unfair to us, well, no, you know, they they weren't invited to that meeting, and I guess that's fair on their part, you know. I I, I guess it is fair since we run everything. And then, really, the the rest of the movie is kind of a gallop to to the end, where a bunch of montages, um, murder montages, yeah, yeah, murder <laughs> montages. One one scene that uh, really sticks out in my mind is when the actor troupe gets um, 
stopped by the the Cowboys and uh, they they Billy they yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the actor woman, I can't I can't remember what her name is in the show, but anyway, she she makes a really good point, which is that from her point of view, they're all bad. Like it's all ugly violence and it doesn't matter who's quote unquote right or wrong because th- this guy who wasn't a part of the fight at all was killed and, and right. so it's kind of this collateral damage argument that we hear in the modern time where we're supposed to just overlook the fact that innocent people are being hurt by us enforcing the law and, uh, you know, and it's something where I think that a lot of people just look at it and just see the violence and and the ugliness. And, uh, and so that's why, you know, we have this real big disconnect between what the government's doing and then how everyday people are looking at it. Yeah. I think it was interesting at one point, I mean, it's not super interesting, but at one point, the men are kind of like have accepted that they're in this like battle with each other. But what caused like Curly Bill or Curly Johnson or not the Battle Creek or whatever his name is to come over to Wyatt's side is that they targeted the women, the wives. So like there's a guy with a shotgun, he breaks into their house and shoots the wall and kind of scares all the women. And that's what everybody is shocked about. It's not that people got murdered or whatever. It's that these were like innocents. And so then now it's on and this is you cross the line and now we're going to join um, these marshals on this, this kill murder spree. It seems like a tenuous reason to go murder a bunch of people. But I, the whole, the whole um, you know, if I see a red sash, I'm going to kill the man that's wearing it. So you better run. That's... Uh, I can't really justify that from a from an NAP position. <laughs> yeah, I doesn't doesn't sound like a like a very solid <laughs> position. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, nobody said that that uh, Earp had read any Rothbard. So. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. No, and he has the U.S. Marshal badge, so he says, you know, apparently he's God, and he can decide who lives and dies. Much like today. One one of the other really cool parts then that getting getting towards the end is af- after they have the big scene at at the at the creek where Wyatt dodges all the bullets and then gets curly curly oh. bill, um, <laughs> oh. where it's uh, John Johnny Johnny Ringo calls out Wyatt Earp for a duel and uh, Wyatt accepts, but there's there's this knowledge in, in the back of his mind where, you know, he, it's probably a duel he's not going to win. And so uh, Doc Holliday steps in and steals Wyatt's badge <laughs> to, right. uh, to, to uh, give the cloak of legitimacy to, to taking over the duel with, uh, with Johnny where, where he does, uh, where he does kill, uh, kill Johnny Ringo. So, that that was one other really interesting point, and then the and then the rest of the movie is uh, you know whatever we're supposed uh, you know Doc dies in bed, which I thought was was a shame for his character, but I mean it's historical, so whatever. Right, right. And then uh, mont like you said, kill murder montage until all the cowboys are gone. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's about it. I think the most interesting thing, I mean, I didn't even notice the first, like, four times I've seen this movie, but, like, uh, Charlton Heston was the owner of the ranch where Doc is. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, the uh, the whole time where uh, Doc goes up in this uh, duel with Hicks slash Ringo, he, yeah, he shows the badge, and he's like, this time it's legal. 
It's like, really? So some big gang of thugs said that it's okay for you to kill this guy, so that means it's okay. It's actually, it's okay to kill him if you both agree that you're going to have a duel. That's what makes it okay, not because some authority yeah. told you it's okay. Yeah, yeah. though, Rico was, was hesitant to begin with because he knew that Doc Holliday was good. And uh, Holiday had told Earp that, that Earp would lose because yeah. Ringo is really good. So right. I thought that was kind of interesting to, to recognize the expertise and the skill level that each of these guys had. Because, you know, now we think of Earp as this legend as being amazing and, and whatever. He couldn't lose, but it was actually Doc Holliday who was like the fastest gunslinger in the West. Yeah, right. He definitely had confidence. He definitely played it off like he was he was ready to go at any time. and <laughs> He wants to play the game yeah. for yeah. blood. I'm your Huckleberry. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, and you brought it up earlier. I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the fact that he already knew that he wasn't long for this world anyway. You know, he wasn't going to live to a ripe old age any way he played it. So, you know, play it fast and loose. Why not? Yeah. Go out in a blaze of glory, man. Yeah, I think that, that that's a good point to bring up, that a lot of people can stretch themselves if, if their mind allows them to go beyond what they think initially their physical capacity is like you can you can reach beyond especially when you know that you're going to die you're going to take it that much further and be able to accomplish that much more uh without having that 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 thought of oh what if what if i'm wrong what if that fear of failure holds me back like he didn't have that anymore nope and and so um a couple, couple other quotes that we didn't get to that i really enjoy is in the in the scene in the bar uh, later on, Doc's playing the piano, and uh, one of the cowboys played by, I can't remember his name, but he was Lowell from Wings. Uh, and, Thomas Hayden Church, I think. Yeah. Um, anyway, he, he's like, so do you, do you know anything by Stephen Foster? You know, Camp Town Races, <laughs> Stephen Sinking Foster? And he's like, no, this is Frederick fucking Chopin. And I'm like, yeah. That's cool. I don't know, man. Doc's character in that movie just had unbelievable coolness level. Like, way cooler than Wyatt. Obviously cooler than uh, than, than Morgan or uh, um, Sam Elliott's character, or Virgil. And, yep. and uh, just his coolness factor in that movie was through the roof. <laughs> yeah, this is the movie that really made me disappointed, I guess, in the rest of his career. Because oh, he was God, so yeah. cool in this. And then he went on to play Batman, not really in a really bad in Batman. In a very movie. bad Batman movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's not the, the Batman worst one. Movie. No, not the worst okay. Batman movie. <laughs> it's not as bad as George Clooney's Batman movie, but it's it's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it, it's uh, when they had turned to that cartoony style for a couple of movies. Oh, it was horrible. Absolutely horrible. Well, no, he Mr. did this. Mr. Uh, Freeze. Yeah, uh, he did a movie about a, a blind man that was given sight through a surgery, and it was just long and boring. Top Gun, Willow, and Tombstone, that's like the triad and of Val Kilmer movies. Heat, yes, of course, Heat. Of course, he wasn't as big in Heat, you know? It was it was mainly um, whatever, De Niro, right? De Niro and yeah, Pacino. 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 Yeah, De Niro yeah. and Pacino. Speaking of that, blind guys, uh, Pacino in uh, Scent of a Woman. Super mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. No, and then uh, Val Kilmer had a really great uh, cameo on the uh, HBO show Entourage as the weed-growing Sherpa, which was, uh, which was a really cool role, too. I, I enjoyed it. So, I, I don't know. I'm a pretty big Val Kilmer fan. Uh, did you see the episode of Life is Short where, where Kilmer tries to um, convince... Uh, the guy who played the character who played Willow, the guy who played Willow, 
Um, so oh, yeah. Make a too. <laughs> and uh, and that, so he kind of like, hey, we need to we need to um, you know uh, generate a whole bunch of money. We attract a bunch of investors. We're going to make Willow too. We're going to make it happen. And so he goes and he gets all these investors and they end up making like fifty grand. And then Kilmer just like makes off with it. He's like, well, I got a lifestyle to maintain, man. It's funny. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You know the. The uh, George Lucas wrote some books about the Willow story, and in the continuate, maybe I say George Lucas, but no, maybe it might be someone else. Anyway, that, that's unimportant. We can put in the show notes if anyone cares. But yeah, like uh, Matt, uh, Val Kilmer's character dies in the second book, so not not a whole lot of chance of Willow too. I don't think, uh, unless they're gonna pull like a Disney Star Wars where they're just like everything ever written about Star Wars after the movies is fake, right? <laughs> We're, we're, Warwick Davis. Warwick Davis, yes. The guy. Yeah, who's also been in uh, the Harry Potter movies and Star Wars. He's had quite a career, actually. Yeah, he was Dude, wicked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah. No, he, he, wasn't he in the like Ewok uh, spinoff movies, too? Like, oh, the made-for-TV ones? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah. I, I'm telling you, like, that dude, he, he's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, well, if you ever watch Life is Short, he's, uh, he's hilarious. That, that show is really funny. It's a Ricky Gervais, um, Stephen Merchant comedy. Oh, nice. I, I hadn't heard of it, so I'll have to check it out. I, I like those guys. They're funny. <laughs> yeah, I love he's also Carl. in um, Carl Pilkington's uh, second or third season of whatever that show is, Carl Pilkington. Idiot Abroad. Moron Idiot Abroad. abroad or, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, Idiot Abroad. Warwick Davis is, is in season two or three of that, along with Carl Pilkington. I love that. I, I love Carl too. The 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 round headed buffoon. <laughs> yeah, that's my wife's ringtone on her phone. Actually, the the opening music to that. <laughs> and mine's uh, Bojack Horseman. Oh, Bojack! You know, I I'm not a big fan of all the American made animations like Bojack and all those. What was the other Bob's Burgers? All those types of shows. Like, I, I'm just a huge animation snob. Like. If it's not like a 80s or 90s cartoon that I watched as a kid or a Japanese anime, then I'm like, just, oh, it's not good. <laughs> right. I'm just going to mute myself and you and uh, Robert can nerd out for a minute here. <laughs> no, that's all right. We should probably wrap this up. I don't know how long we've been going, but it seems like we've been uh, done yeah, about for a while. Getting, yeah, it's been <laughs> like an hour or so for sure. No, we can definitely talk about rap about that later. You you a big fan of, of that type of stuff, Robert? Yeah, I'm a huge. Uh, well, I don't know huge. I mean, there are some serious anime nerds, but uh, I've I'm a I'm a, I'm a large lost a lot a of large fan. Well, there's a couple of questions you can ask that that can pretty much zero in on how big of a nerd you are, and that is like, how many seasons of One Piece have you seen? I don't even know what that is. Well, but my so favorite, you're not that big. <laughs> well. Okay, let me tell you, my favorite anime is a recent one called One Punch Man. Oh, that is a very, very good one about Saitama. Yeah, Saitama. He, he's awesome. Talk about, you know, that would be a cool show to uh, talk about. Just like the idea of someone that's so strong that he defeats everyone in one punch. Ah, I just love it. <laughs> it's, it's, the best, it's the best Superman show I've ever seen. And I think they do it right. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, he's just overpowered, and yeah, nobody can provide a challenge to him, and that's why and that's all you ever want is a challenge. It's hilarious. I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't seen it. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so to wrap so up Dan, Tombstone, Holiday right. dies after all these adventures, and Poor he guy. tells Earp at the very end, who Earp says, you know, I just wanted to have a normal life, and Holiday's like, there is no normal life. You just got to live the life you're going to live, and live for me. I'm dying. You go and live. Go, go after that actress. Go make a life with her, and that's what he does. That's like the the crowning achievement to the to the whole movie is that White Earp, who's been struggling to find uh, a meaning for life, and and yeah, leaves his wife and runs off with an actress. <laughs> well, his wife is uh, addicted to opium, and I think she yeah. she uh, in real life died shortly thereafter, overdose. Right, right. Yeah, that could get so the whole drug wars. So we'd be talking for another two hours. Yeah, there's one there's one other quote that is right along with that. And this is like when they're talking when when he's about to die and it's I spent my whole life this is Erp. I spent my whole life not knowing what I want out of it, just chasing my tail. Now for the first time I know exactly what I want and who. That's the damnable misery of it. And I think that that is a really really good quote, you know, cuz it seems like that a lot like you spend a whole lot of your time searching for your purpose and then when you finally find it it sometimes kind of hard to uh enact enact that path <laughs> if that makes sense <laughs> no that does and and like we were saying this movie is full of quotes and i'm going to list a couple of videos of the top 20 quotes and and a few lists as well and speaking of quotes, at ActualAnarchy.com, I've been loading quotes. I think I mentioned it earlier. We've got 400 mm-hmm. or 500 quotes. It's ActualAnarchy.com slash quotes. Check it out if you want to get into an argument with somebody. It's searchable. At least in Safari, you can put in a keyword, and it'll bring up the relevant quotes. So if you get in a fight on Facebook, you can get that quote and, and just blast people with it with really good stuff. But I think that pretty much wraps up our show for the most part. So, Kenny, tell us again where people can find more of your work, what you're, what you're doing and uh, you know, feel free to say whatever you want to our 112 listeners. <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank you guys for having me on. It's been a blast. I think we made a lot of good points. Uh, anyone that's interested in what I'm doing, uh, I would direct you to libertariannerds.com or there's a Facebook Libertarian Nerds. Um, that that's where a, a lot of a lot of my work can be found. And uh, the Wizardly Wisdom podcast. You can. It's on SoundCloud. Uh, if you if you search, I'm pretty sure iTunes and Stitcher and all those too. If you search Wizardly Wisdom, um, you'll come up with my podcast. And then also just you know keep checking back WalterBlock.com. Uh, we're we're doing a lot of work to try and make it more accessible. You know, there there are already quite a few articles that we've put up uh, from his published scholarly work that you can get to uh, under the publications tab on walterblock.com. Um, it, I mean, he has so many, it's kind of hard to, to decide which ones to, to start with. So we're kind of just doing the ones that we, we think are the most interesting or are the easiest to get a good copy of. And, but we're, we're going to be continually, uh, continuing to update that. And, uh, you know, I just think it's so important for people to be exposed to Dr. Block's work. So, yeah, that, that's pretty much it for, for me. Excellent. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, been a blast having you on. That'll do it for me. Take care, everybody. Hug someone you love and uh, go out and provide value to somebody out there in life. Daniel, thanks for being on this show with me. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Thank you guys very much for joining us. This has been the Actual Anarchy Podcast. This can be at actual, This can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 26. This is the episode about Tombstone. 
Uh, feel free to click on any of the Amazon links and start your search there for anything you want to purchase, and that will help support the site. We've also got a Liberty Classroom link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom if you want to learn more about libertarianism and Austrian economics. Highly recommended. Be able to win debates with leftists and have a better understanding of the world about you. Uh, we also run readrothbard.com. Pretty much all i got to say at this point, other than I'm your Huckleberry. Good night, folks. Peace. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do